Johnson is in the house. Of course, I'm Mike Ricksecker, your host, author and ghost story, and with my co-hostess, as usual, Vanessa Hogel, and our lovely chat shenanigator, Shauna, down in the chat room, shenanigating everything down there. Of course... Keith, uh, Keith really doesn't need much of an introduction. Uh, we all know uh, Keith Johnson, but uh, demonologist, uh, world-renowned. Uh, he hosts a show, Ghosts Are Near, and he's an author. got one of his books right here, uh, Paranormal Realities 3, which uh, we're going to get into a little bit tonight. We're actually going to be talking about vampire lore. Uh, met up with Keith just recently here at Ocean State Paracon, and uh, we were having a pretty good conversation about vampires, so I thought we would just continue that here on the show. So, Keith, welcome. Great to have you on. Well, it's great to be here. Thank you for inviting me. It's it's my pleasure. Believe me, it's my pleasure. Yeah, absolutely. We need to talk about one of my favorite subjects. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. And as Mike mentioned, uh, we um, met, of course, he had worked with my brother Carl before some years ago, as, as you have yourself. And we met um, Mike and I. Um, actually, we were sitting right next to each other. He was yeah. behind me. I was behind him. We turned around, and that's how we met at Ocean State Paracon recently in July. So that was quite a good uh, good event. It's always an excellent event. Uh, wonderful weekend. And I did get the privilege to see Mike lecture about shadow people. He's very good, isn't he? Yes, yes, he's extremely good, extremely professional, and uh, he's one of the closest people, the shadow people that I know. <laughs> <laughs> I've had a few experiences, that's for sure. Right, yeah, yeah, you have had experiences with them. Mm. Yeah, yeah, and I appreciate so your questions during the, uh, during the Q&A. Sure, sure, that was, that was a lot of fun, a very enjoyable weekend. And it happens every year, Ocean State Paracon in July, usually it's the uh, second around the second weekend of July, and um, it's held right in Harrisville. And those who have seen The Conjuring are familiar that that's the Conjuring case was right there in Harrisville uh, involving the Perrin family. And, of course, we were sitting right with the Perrin family as well. You know, very good friends of mine, and, and I do have a connection to that case, which, um, you know, we can get into if you'd like. But, uh, well, yeah, yeah, it's I a fine that. <laughs> well yeah because it's very oh. different than what happened in the movie where basically yes. you and carl are the ones that made the connection of the parent family to the warrens yes yes yeah yeah yep that's not what they showed in the movie but no. um i i for one have to say that irritated me because i knew about that connection i knew about that and you already knew yes yeah and to when I, when i watched the movie which of course this was none of andrea's fault you know when i watched the movie i'm like but that's not true <laughs> right. that's not how that happened you right. know and it was it was a bit frustrating and, and for those watching that's just another example for for all of y'all out there in youtube land when we tell you don't believe everything you see we're not kidding, okay? Because if something like that is so easily fudged on, imagine about the big stuff. Mm -hmm. So, Keith, yeah. Keith, you want to go ahead and talk about how that happened? Yeah. Because we do have a couple of people just immediately in chat uh, asking, oh, yes, please, we'd love to hear about the connection. Okay, well, essentially, uh, it was back when Carl and I were still teenagers, actually. We were still teenagers, and uh, this was the early 70s. So there was no internet. We belonged to a group uh, affiliated with Rhode Island College called PIRO, Parapsychological Investigation and Research Organization. I put a little ad. I thought it looked kind of nice. I drew a frame around it and everything. Little ad in a local paper, and it was answered three weeks later by um, the Perrin family, and that's how we became involved. Um, Carolyn Perrin mentioned that there's something very, very horrific going on in our house. Uh, we have an 18th century house in Harrisville, Rhode Island. And uh, if you would, would you be willing to come investigate? So we did come and investigate. And while we found that was the real deal, that um, there was nothing fake about that. That was really, anybody who um, wants to say that was uh, just, just faked by the family, they uh, were never there at the time. You know, because I know a lot of trouble happened since, a lot of controversy, which, which always happens in, in big situations like this. But uh, when it was um, just us and we came to, to visit them and investigated, yes, there was uh, quite a bit of activity 
uh, as soon as I arrived, I, I felt that there was a force field on the property. It was hard to even step onto the property, but I had been praying the whole way. I had my Bible open the whole way. And um, I was uh, accepted by the parent family right away. The uh, girls just, uh, maybe it's because I had hair. I was like um, about 127 pounds. I had hair down uh, past my shoulders and and they just grabbed me by the wrist and they just led me all around the property and gave me a tour, uh, showed us um, Bathsheba Sherman's grave, took us to that cemetery, and then took me upstairs. And um, meanwhile, my brother Carl was there in the, and he's talking about shadow people. He was um, in the house. He and uh, Donna, the chairperson of our organization, were talking to Carolyn. He excused himself to use the bathroom upstairs. And uh, while he was upstairs, he looked down the hallway, and this is just around twilight, and an August evening, very hot and humid, and he sees this, the shadows, kind of like a, like a, a ball of smoke coming right towards him, and just before it uh, makes contact, it dissipates. So uh, he did experience that. They experienced disembodied footsteps going on upstairs when nobody was there. Um, the children took me upstairs and sat me on the bed and said, "This is the room where most, you know, two of us share this bedroom with the." most frightened there here and you could just feel the energy just building 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 coalescing uh very very difficult to stay in there but i realized i had to um i was the closest thing to an adult even though i was only a teenager myself and um there was a window beside me that could not been have been closed they even tried closing it with a hammer over the weeks because it was just it was an old house and just the humidity would not allow this window to close all the way. I asked, uh, what religion are you? They said, we're Catholic. So I told them, why don't you try calling upon the name of Jesus Christ when you're frightened? As soon as I said that, that window slammed. It slammed with horrific force. And you could just feel the vibration. The air became so thick. It was like an electric, hard to describe. It was like an electric current. But uh, anybody who's experienced this knows what I mean. It's like an electric current and it's draining you. And uh, one of the girls was slapped on on the left side of the head, uh, demonic sign, demonic sign right there that she was slapped counterclockwise, uh, practically flew off the bed. They were screaming and crying. I called upon the name of Jesus twice more, told them don't be afraid, and it left the room like that. Wow. So, yes. So uh, soon afterwards, we went downstairs. Uh, it had left the room, but it didn't leave the house. But um, that just shows the power in the name of Jesus and when, it, when spoken in faith. And we came downstairs, and uh, that's our, our first night of being involved in the Conjuring case. So that's that's a true story. And we were close friends with Ed and Lorraine Warren. They said, uh, we told them, um, we gave them a call and just asked for some advice. They said, well, we'll do more than advise. We'll come down and uh, we'll work on this case with you. And that's how they became involved, you see. Now, let me ask you, um, just because there's always speculation about this, and not even just with with the parents haunting, but with others as well. Do you think that the activity that, that was going on there was exacerbated or amplified by the fact that there were so many young women? I think so. I think so. That's because, a great question. Um, yeah. Yes, very, very good question. Very good question. Uh, not that there was an activity there. Uh, Earl Kenyon, the gentleman who owned the house and sold it to the parent family, he would keep the lights on all night. He would keep the lights on all night, and uh, that's not a made-up story because I know people in the neighborhood that lived there at the time said, yes, this uh, man, Mr. Kenyon, used to keep his lights on in that house all night long. And he even, before uh, the family knew what was going on there, when they first sold it, uh, he went for a walk, and it was actually snowing out. He went for a walk with Roger Perrin, the father, and said, uh, Raj, do yourself and your family a favor. Leave the lights on all night in the house. And Roger just didn't know what he meant, but he just, just agreed with them and ignored it. But uh, then he found out that things do happen in that house. And uh, so anyway, that's how the Warrens became involved. And uh, it, it was the, um, the fact that this young family moved in. And one, there were uh, five girls in the family, and the very young family. Two, they were the only generation that was not direct of the direct bloodline from the uh, original family. The house was built in 1736, 
and um, it was known as the it became known as the Arnold Estate because various members of the Arnold family lived there. So it became known as the old Arnold Estate, and they were the first family not of that bloodline. So that may have had something to do with it too. So known as the uh, Dexter Richardson slash Old Arnold Estate. So that's yeah. the history of the house, and a lot of yeah. bizarre things, <laughs> things did happen there. Yeah, and I mean, you're explaining something that happened in just one day there, but you know that was yes a lot of activity that they had over. You know, the movie shows you know that maybe it happened over a couple of months or whatever. That's kind of the oh, yeah. the feel that you get for the movie. But this was ten years worth of time that they were there. You're exactly right. Yeah, the the parent family did live there for ten years. Uh, ten whole years. Now, it wasn't a constant barrage of ne negative activity. There was even some positive activity there. I believe oh, there yeah. was even angelic attention. Yeah, but um, well, that's why Andrea's finally, book is called House of Darkness, House of Light, because there was also a lot of light there as well, not just the dark. Yeah. yeah. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. But um, it was uh, shortly after our visit, and shortly before Ed and Lorraine became involved, that uh, we. Of course, we told Carolyn, anything happens, give us a call right away. Well, we did receive a call midweek. Uh, Carolyn was just uh, terrified of what was happening there. And it was about uh, three days after our visit. And it was early in the morning, she told us that uh, she woke up knowing that something was wrong. It was just starting to daylight out. And my, my personal experience is that that is really, I mean, we know the, the uh, witching hour at night and we know the demonic uh, noontime uh, 12 to 3 30 a.m. but um, this was I also found that uh, twilight twilight time seems to be uh, um, like create kind of a portal for spirits to come and go activity starts and ends but uh, it was in the early morning hours and she woke up in the bedroom something was wrong she smelled a scent of decaying meat rotting flesh mixed with sulfur is how she described it and, and uh, something was uh, there was like something sparkling on her dresser and then it stopped she turned over and there's this uh, it's hard to describe what this was uh, this kind of phantasm in female form um, the only way you could really describe it is like a uh, is of a desiccated corpse just just standing there looking at her strangely of course there was a uh, story of a suicide in the barn a, a uh, woman had supposedly hanged herself in the barn well this spirit the, the uh head was hanging to one side onto the onto the shoulder as if the neck had been snapped but uh it just started saying such a bizarre chant to her and she couldn't remember it all at the time what she did remember was the spirit said to her i'll drive you mad with fiery brooms i'll drive you mad with death and gloom i'll drive you out but twill be too late for you'll be dead and uh then it just vanished and she's terrified and of course roger wakes up her husband and he's got bloody scratches on his back and uh so that was not a good good night so no wonder no. she called us yeah this this is terrifying me i you know she said i'm a tough georgia woman i grew up on a plantation i've seen all sorts of accidents and uh, but um this this is just truly horrendous this is this is too much to take and uh, so that's um that was our initial experience with the conjuring case and it it's all true uh some of it is uh worse than was portrayed actually in the movie wow so andrea is doing the uh film version it will take some time of course yeah. but she does plan to do it trilogy house of darkness house of light for the screens so. yeah i know that's in Good. the works so uh we do have a few things to catch up with from the chat first of all there's a ten dollar super chat from tom mcnicholas thank you very much tom his uh his comment is happy tuesday we also had a just before the show started a twenty dollar super chat from bd flint she's uh baking cookies for her mother's birthday and will not be able to join us this evening oh. so uh so that's a, birthday. <laughs> yeah yeah so uh ren oak is wondering when we're gonna get to the uh, vampires we will hear in just a little bit um gary the fam uh Keith wants to uh, say that, let you know that he is in the chat. He he works with you. Oh, excellent! Yep. Excellent, yeah. Good friend Gary. Yeah. Yep. Um, no chasers. Yeah. Yep. So, a couple quick questions um, from Betty Lange. So, was the house to blame? The 
House, um, in a matter of speaking, the House could have been to blame because I think the property, I don't know if taint is the right word, but I think there was something there long before white settlers, long before white settlers. I think there was something there uh, in that same community uh, during the 19th century. A gentleman found uh, a gigantic skeleton of a Native American in his basement. So, wow. Who, who knows what went on there? But I think from day one, um, when the house was first built for uh, Dexter Richardson, now he, he married an Indian squaw. And uh, apparently the, uh, the vicinity was not that populated by uh, white settlers at the time. And um, so he was not harassed that much for doing that. But um, who knows what uh, tribal things went on there. Uh, uh, they have their, their law and everything, their, their spiritual worship. And uh, they have negative and positive, just like in the Christian faith so who knows what could have gone on there my personal opinion uh, uh, from day one something was going on there so I think something was always in the house and I do not believe it was of a human nature I believe it was in human spirit from the beginning and that's that's always my uh, my belief um, I do not think it was Bathsheba Sherman no. I do not think so it's uh, Bathsheba was actually a Baptist a Baptist woman uh, the Christian community she was given she passed in 1885. She was given a wonderful, wonderful funeral oration and uh, buried in hallowed ground in a Christian grave. Now, community folk just don't do that for satanic, suspected satanic witches. Right. So a lot of a lot of that came about uh, posthumously. I believe it was after her death. These rumors came about, and of course, her grave unfortunately was vandalized. Somebody kept smashing the headstone, and first time we saw it, it was broken in half. And fortunately, it has been repaired now. And um, yes, uh, but I don't think it was her. I think that she got the bum rap and everything like that. And uh, whatever spirit uh, came into the uh, room where Carolyn was in her bedroom. I, I don't believe that was a human spirit, and I don't believe it was even um, posing as Bathsheba Sherman. I believe it was uh, posing as someone from the uh, 18th century, the way it talked, very, very, very archaic language, which Bathsheba Sherman would never have used. And um, so, yeah, Bathsheba gets a bum rap, especially, especially in the movie. In fact, oh, yeah. I even wrote... I wrote out some things. I bet they. Uh, I bet when the Conjuring comes out, they're going to say that she's related to a, a witch from Salem. And sure enough, that's what they said. You know, yep. she's related to. Them. And that that uh, presumes that the witches in Salem were guilty, which they weren't. Which they were yeah. witches. So, uh, yeah. Of not. I had three ancestors in the witch trials. Really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Deliverance Hog, her husband, and her daughter Abigail. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh. So it's it just it, it it never ceases to amaze me how if people don't have somebody specific to blame they have to create somebody. Yes. And yes. and that is that is what's going on as opposed to saying we don't know mm -hmm. why, why this is happening. That for some reason people have the hugest problem with that. They have to have a villain. Oh and yeah. The, fact oh, the yeah. matter is, it just, life just doesn't work that way. Sometimes there's not a specified villain. Yes. But I am curious. Do you feel that due to what you experienced while you were there on the on those grounds mm -hmm. and how that set you up at such a young, at such a tender age, mm -hmm. how did that set you on this course, especially with coming into the vampirism where that we have viewers wanting to hear about? How did that set you up for that? Did it. Was it a good thing? Was it a bad thing? Indifferent? Well, what are your feelings on that? Well, as horrific as it was, I really think it was a positive thing. I think it was a positive thing. I felt I was being led in this direction, and that was the verification. That was the verification. It's like yeah. uh, three. I, I was, you know, an insomniac at the time, and uh, three weeks before I ever met the Perrin family, I was praying in the middle of the night and uh, in a darkened room, and I really. Really got, I wasn't hearing actual voices, but I received the impression that I was to meet a family. You will help them out there. They're under demonic uh, onslaught. Uh, you will meet them and you will become like, eventually become like one of their family. So, and then three weeks later, the uh, 
the parent family, uh, we were introduced, and uh, that's that's how it happened. So I really think that was the catalyst, and it it helped me believe that I was on the right track by the grace of God. By the grace of God. I mean, I wasn't going in there saying by my my power this will this will stop. No, by no way, no way would I ever do that. But um, thank you for that. <laughs> you're welcome. Yeah. You're very welcome. <laughs> I might not be around, at least not in the same state of mind, if if I had to, you know, go on my under my own power. So, but yes, yeah, that's that's how it started for me. Wow. Yeah, so what a way to start. <laughs> <laughs> so we do have uh, some of the uh, you know questions coming in from the chat, but I, you know, to kind of wrap it back up into um, the vampire aspect. Now you mentioned Bathsheba uh, Sherman was you know buried yeah. in hollowed ground. Well. Shauna and I were just watching actually earlier today. We're you know, getting prepared for the show, so we we're watching some uh, some things on on vampires just to kind of you know get everything back in the mind, and came across this uh, interesting report about a um, uh, quote unquote vampire in Greece on an island out in Greece that was buried under the city wall and he had stakes like three different stakes through his body or maybe it was four uh to keep him pinned to the ground so to me that's an example mm -hmm. there where you know they're already marking him as this is a vampire we don't they didn't put him in their hollowed ground they kept him i mean under the city wall so to me that's a perfect example there of what you're talking about you know Bathsheba was you know buried in hollowed ground where somebody that would be considered you know, evil in nature would not. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes, exactly. And that that's interesting that their culture would do that. And it um it also reminds me of the uh the bog bog finds. You I'm sure you've heard of them. The um people that were sacrificed uh, during the Iron Age. Uh many of them were Scandinavian, uh, they were they were they were Danish, uh Germanic, uh Swedish they would Irish. Um, they would actually sometimes sacrifice people for the uh, good, and and these were not uh, murder victims as was originally thought, because when their people died, they would burn the bodies. Their their form of uh, burial was cremation. So these people were actually sacrificed as um, you know as a holy sacrifice to ensure a, a good harvest and and whatnot. And of course, ironically, uh, the people that did away with them along since turned to dust and these bodies some many of them had been preserved because of the acid the tannic acid and the um, tanning process that goes on in the bog water uh, in hmm. the peat and of course people you uh, harvesting the peat for fire source and, and they've come across these bodies and uh, they thought they were recent murder victims so it turns out they were about 2,000 plus years old so. <laughs> now to, to to expand on what Mike was just talking about, I need to see if either one of you have ever heard of this. About 10 or 15 years ago, I was doing some research, and I want to say, and please, y'all, correct me if I'm wrong, but I want to say that I read something about the president of Romania or one of the high officials in Romania who, a long time ago, they were so certain he was a vampire that he was actually dug up and desecrated again. Am I remembering that correctly, Keith? Yes, yes. Thank I you, because yeah. I can find it yeah. anywhere now. Yeah. yeah, and that was, um, that was kind of the, um, the source, the way it was done, even in Rhode Island uh, over the years, um, a couple of centuries ago, where it would be kind of an exorcism where these things are happening okay let's find the vampire there's a vampire doing this so they would find the corpse uh, if they could find one that wasn't properly decayed or a suspected vampire they dig it up and uh, mutilate the corpse in some way uh, disturb the corpse in a way that it was not uh, not going to come back anymore and bother anybody whether that was staking it or doing something uh, even sometimes going so far as to turn the body over so when it tries to get out it's going to dig its way down further you see Exactly. Removing the head was another. Yeah. That was another big one. Uh, but what I find most fascinating is if you go back through history, and I mean back through history, uh, during the times when there was absolutely no way for countries or, or, or different regions to communicate with each other, you can find stories 
of what we would consider vampires that resemble ones from other regions perfectly. They might have had a different name for it, but the mannerisms, um, what they would do, how they would be taken care of, are all fairly identical. And there's no way for these different civilizations or societies to communicate. How can you explain that or reconcile that for something that people believe doesn't or never existed? Oh, it was the Indians. That's 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 what the that's what the um, the what the white populace uh, said in New England. Oh, it's the Indians. Of course, that's where we they got it from. That that was their practice. It was the Indians. And they were the scapegoats because they blamed the Indians for everything. Uh, so uh, we're actually. It was more European. The source was most likely European, where they derived these ideas of disrupting the corpse to the uh, revenant from coming back and preying upon the living, as sleeping victims. You know, but yes, it seemed like a lot of the origins goes for everything. So right. <laughs> he said back then, but it wasn't true. Yeah, it seemed like a lot of the origins uh, for the mm -hmm. vampiric legends came out of Eastern Europe, and that the practices that were performed in in Rhode Island. Uh, seem to have their origins back there. So do you think that's, yes. you find yes. that to be true? Okay. Yeah, and um, mm -hmm. I saw in the oh, chat yeah, there... The European stock, they... Uh... Yeah, I saw in the chat there somebody mentioning uh, Romania, not only the, I guess, the the leader that you're talking about, but a uh, also a local, and I actually dug that one up. So that was... Um, mm -hmm. See, there's, there's Keith, but there's a uh, article. It was uh, Toma Petre? Is it, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it right but yeah i mean this is just in 2004 yes. so oh, yeah. it was just in 2004 and they're still doing it today mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, the oldest the, the oldest story i've ever read or, or the insinuation of vampirism um the oldest one i've ever read about was over four thousand years old wow four thousand Years That's old, a long time ago. Which predates Christianity by many, many moons. Mm -hmm. And so that's that's what I find so fascinating is that even if we consider it something that never existed and possibly be around today, if the stories have lasted 4,000 years, don't they have some basis in fact? So there's, there's, there's always some basis in fact. Always, you know, you hear these stories, they're usually fanciful stories, but there's always some, some big grain of truth, some basis in fact. And even fairy tales, fairy tales mostly have some, uh, some basis in fact as well, too. Absolutely, absolutely. I'm glad I'm not the only one who thinks that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not the only crazy one. <laughs> All right, we do have that, a couple of... That's, that's what I thought when I was... My brother and I were 17 years old. The first time we met Ed and Lorraine Warren, I said, see, we're not the only crazy ones. <laughs> exactly. I'm not saying they were crazy, but I'm saying that uh, the way it was uh, unacceptable at the time. So. Right, True. right. Yeah, and that's, I think that's something that's been very progressive lately is that there's more and more people accepting what we do yes. rather than back in the day, it was very difficult to break through those barriers. Yeah, yes, absolutely. So we have a couple more questions down more here questions, in the chat. Mike? Yeah. So uh, Chuck Banks from Beyond the Light Network, where we are simulcasting, asks, uh, are vampires considered demonic in nature? That depends on who you talk to. Are vampires considered demonic, demonic, demonic <laughs> in nature? Um, to me, they are. To me, they are. It's, there's folklore, of course. But um, I do believe there's some basis in, um, in the demonic as well. Uh, they are considered demonic. So some people believe their origin is to be demonic. And, uh, you know, that gets, that gets really, really complicated. But um, supposedly there, there was um, the first corruption of uh, hum humanity, the first major corruption, uh, could have been blamed on uh, spirits spirits that took on the nature of the vampire they took on the nature of the vampire and actually emulated humans and this you know i'm i'm saying this is theory this is some people's belief but uh they took the blood the dna they took the life force of human beings and that's how they replicated themselves as human beings 
and of course this got out of control and uh, there was a, a race of giants and he, that's that's even mentioned in the Bible of course yeah. they preyed upon each other the earth no longer sustained them and then you get into the apocrypha you get of the the book included in the Bible you get the book of Enoch uh, where it says the earth could no longer sustain them and they began to pray upon each other uh, drinking each other's blood and uh, even uh, cannibalizing each other so and we know that has happened throughout his human history as well so True. I don't know. oh sure sure wow. have you found that have you found that more stories tend to circulate in specific regions yes Yes, they do. And um, New England was one of them. New England was one of them. Uh, well, we are, we were once here in Rhode Island. Rhode Island was, uh, during the uh, 19th century, Rhode Island was known as the vampire capital of America. So cool. Yeah. yeah now, we are also... Also, Julie's capital of America. See, I work, I work at <laughs> Carl and I work at Slater Mill, and stuff. So I happen to know that back. We're the Julie's capital as well, but we're also known as the Vampire Capital. I have to get out to Slater Mill one of these <laughs> one of these days. So, um, so you want to talk about yeah. some yeah. of the different uh, vampire stories out there? I know you um, talked about Sarah uh, Tillinghast in uh, Paranormal Realities yes. Three, which I thought was very interesting because. It, it seems to be in not only do you have the uh, vampire legends, but you also have a lot of things going on with dreams, which I'm very interested in. But you also seem to have you know some ghost mm -hmm. stories mixed in there as well. So it's kind of almost like a little bit of everything. Yes, yes, and, and that's a good point. What you just said, Mike. Uh, it's a little bit of everything, and a uh, uh, case I'll get into a little later that has a little bit of everything. But essentially, uh, Sarah Tillinghast. Now this. This is, this is true. These were all real people. They really lived. There's variations on the story, but these were real people who actually lived, and the main points of the story are actually true. Um, there was a man named uh, Stutley Tillinghast, also known as Stukely Tillinghast, was a prosperous uh, apple farmer. He had an apple orchard and a peach orchard as well. And uh, he had a dream one night that half his orchard had died and half of it was uh, thriving. He smelled the scent of decay and the wind and heard his eldest daughter that was still living at home, Sarah, very beautiful, the only uh, daughter, the eldest daughter that was not married yet, and uh, very beautiful, lovely girl, heard her voice calling to him on the wind. He woke up, and of course, people believed in dreams like that. Now, his wife, Honor Hopkins Tillinghast, had blessed him with 14 children, and uh, he was, uh, really was like a character of Job in the Bible. Uh, God had blessed him with so much and prosperous orchard, uh, lots of money, uh, wonderful, healthy family. And then um, one by one, the uh, plague started uh, taking the family and Sarah, unfortunately, Sarah was the first. Now the white plague was also known as consumption because it consumed, consumed the individual and we know it as uh, pulmonary tuberculosis today of course but uh, Sarah quickly wasted away and died she had the galloping form very fast and then uh, one by one uh, some of her siblings started uh, becoming sick too each of them every one of them complaining Sarah's coming into my room at night sitting on my chest and making me hurt and then that child would soon expire and uh, Sarah was only 22 years old at the time. And this went on for, um, of course, I in the story, I, I fleshed it out and, you know, introduced different characters and such and conversations that I had to fill in. But, but um, this went on for the course of a year until finally Honor herself began having visitations of Sarah and became ill and, and, uh, and told her husband, soon I will be joining my sweet Sarah in the afterlife. Well, then, then, uh, Stukely Tillinghast, whose nickname was Snuffy because of the brownish snuff color jacket he wore, he went wild. He went crazy. He's got to find an explanation. Uh, went to the local Grange, asked them, because they were all the farmers were members of the Grange then, and uh, they suggested that he try an old remedy that had been tried in Cumberland recently in 1796. Now, here we're talking about 1799, and um, the uh, cure, the outside chance for a cure, is to dig up the bodies and find, and four of his uh, children had died so far. Well, they went to, and you've got a picture of this, it's late in the year, and they've got 
something cider, hard cider, and they're passing that around to keep themselves warm. They've got the bandanas always, and they start digging up the the uh, Tillinghast children uh, one by one. They're all well decayed, uh, going back to the earth, and uh, till they get to Sarah. When they they uh, took Sarah out of her coffin there and pulled off her burial shroud, there she is, just like she's alive. Um, her bright blue eyes were wide open. She was um, a big smile on her face, and uh, she looked ruddy as if she had been drinking blood. And, of course, they said, well, that's obviously the vampire. And, uh, and of course, we and that, that is uh, that picture. I'm glad you show that right there. Um, it may be, although there's no inscription on it, Sarah's may be the one to the left, the way they, okay. they would bury the children. But um, uh, we know there's medical explanations for that now, of course. Uh, her teeth were showing, uh, her fingernails and hair had grown. Well, because when the body starts to decay, it does kind of bloat and become ruddy. And the uh, fingernails, the nail beds, the uh, skin pulls back, giving the appearance that the nails have grown. Uh, the skin starts to pull back. That could have come for the smile and the eyes opening. So, um, although they usually would uh, keep a chin strap on to keep the jaw from opening. So her father, um, you know, in front of the men, they all uh, were there for support. He uh, took a, a, a carving butcher knife and cut open her chest and took her heart out and burned it on a nearby rock. Instead of kindling, burned it on a nearby rock. Uh, they let the ashes scatter, and then he went home. And supposedly he did, um, he burst into tears, but he did uh, he did have a vision or um, an epiphany that Sarah did come to him and say, uh, told him, Papa, I'm fine now, I'm all right. I'll always love you and Mama, and I'm waiting for you to join me in heaven. And, and that's, that's supposedly the story. All these people really lived, and that's um, that's the truth of it. Well, now you, there are medical explanations for the nails. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And teeth showing. Mm -hmm. But unless there were long periods of time between the death of each chi of each child, mm -hmm. there isn't a medical explanation for why she would be the least decomposed. Right. She she had died. Was in the she was near she was several months, nearly a year in the grave, and um, we can only speculate as to why. Uh, there's been exhumation. Infestation would have been key. Yes. Yeah. Yep. And because she was the incorruptible, she was the vampire, and um, perhaps uh, I mean, obviously her her grave had not flooded a lot of times, especially in New England, the grave will flood over a course of time. But uh, and um, why why would she be frozen and the others not? And uh, so this. We really don't know. I mean, without modern forensics, there's no way to tell why in 1799 um, that uh, she would not have decomposed properly and brothers and sisters who had died much more recently would would have. Um, we, we can only speculate. And it's interesting because uh, at that time, the whole country was in mourning, too, because we just lost George Washington, our first president, died in December of uh, 1799. So... Wow. That's a good point. Yeah. Kind of point in history and context. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, Keith, yes. mm -hmm. why do you think these appearances of her kept happening? It seemed like everybody in the family kept having visitations from Sarah. Do you think those were mm -hmm. legitimate visitations, or were they hallucinating? What do you think was going on there? Well, yeah, that's that's a good, very question. Good question, Mike. Um, yeah. I, I, you know, I leave it up to the reader to to decide which. which uh, you think is the explanation, but I mean, there's, um, to me, there's, it could have been spiritual. It could have been, but there's also psychological explanations. I mean, you're, you're missing your recently deceased, uh, sister and you yourself have these chest pains and everything like that. You might wake up, uh, dreaming that, uh, and feeling paralyzed that, uh, your sister is sitting on your chest and she's calling to you. I mean, I suppose, I guess psychologically that could be an explanation too. But uh, it, it certainly did affect the family, and it affected the whole town. The whole town was uh, kind of going—I wouldn't say crazy, but they were, you know, you know, what is uh, what is Snuffy Tillinghast going to do? You know, is this going to happen to us? He better do something to stop this malady, because what if it comes to our family? And uh, so the, they did take the spiritual remedy, and uh, supposedly that's. One one more child, a daughter, uh, living on another farm, who was married. Uh, 
did die, but they figured she was uh, too far gone anyway. So, but after that, there were no more, more immediate deaths in the family. So, was it only their family who was affected? I'm sure there were others in the in the community. It's just that um, uh, Snuffy Tillinghast, the Tillinghast family, they were kind of a um, an example to the community because he was so prominent, such a large family, such a large uh, orchard, uh, prominent church members. I think they looked upon them as kind of the uh, epitome. They were like the pillars of the uh, community. So, um, I mean, if they start whittling down, what's going to happen to the rest of us? And so they, they use them as an example. And uh, uh, most of the uh, family lived to a, a ripe old age after that. Now, do you think this case influenced the Mercy Brown case? I do. I do think it, it, it influenced the Mercy Brown case. And the reason I think so is because, uh, again, when this was happening, the Brown family, a century later, uh, that the father was advised by members of the Grange that he belonged to. The Exeter Grange, Exeter, Rhode Island Grange, the same one that Snuffy Tillinghast had, had belonged to. And they were related to the uh, Tillinghast. Now, oh, of course, the Tillinghast okay. and the Brown today are very very proud of that. oh yeah they, they were actually related hmm. they were actually related and um, at the time of course you know we're going to the uh, 1880s and 1890s now but um, the uh, mother had died mother of the Brown family had died in 1883 December 1883 uh, six months later June 1884 um, Mary Olive uh, the eldest daughter dies of consumption of tuberculosis uh, but there are no no more deaths, and this this is a very very prominent church family. Uh, the practically the whole town, certainly the whole con congregation, turned out when Mary Olive died, and they sang her favorite hymn at her gravesite and everything. But um, several years went by, and there were no more deaths until the son, the only son. Now this is uh, very important. The son, he's the only son of the Brown family, and he's um, expected to carry on the family name. He starts, he's a very strong, strapping fellow. That's how he was described as. And um, he started getting very, very ill himself and developed a severe cough. And of course, after a while, coughing blood. So uh, they knew, the doctor knew what it was. But uh, they sent him out to, his name was Edwin, the oldest brother. They sent him out to the uh, Colorado Springs to drink of the mineral water. <coughs> Excuse me. And he was newly married. And so he went with his wife out there. He did seem to recover for a while. Uh, meanwhile, his uh, his sister, now the eldest sister, still surviving, Lena. And um, Lena was uh, her first name was Mercy, but she actually in life did go by her middle name, Lena. And uh, she became ill, and she developed the galloping form of consumption and uh, died very wasted and died very rapidly. And um, so Mercy Lena. Uh, died and was buried, and uh, she was actually buried in January, January of 1892, and um, soon after, the son came home, he had had a relapse, and he came home essentially to die, to see his relatives to die, and now, the, of course, the poor father, George Brown, is frantic. Uh, it's interesting that George Brown did not believe in the vampire remedy. He did not believe in the superstition. However, the uh, Grand Master of the Exeter Grange, his name was George Rose, he and his family had had an exhumation of a family member looking for the undead. And so um, it's very, though there's no record of it, it's very, very likely he talked to George Brown and uh, told him, this is how we handled this situation. You might want to do the same. And the other members of the Grange probably went along with that. He himself did not believe in it, but, I mean, it's his only son. Uh, medical science was not offering a cure at the time. So uh, finally, he agreed to it, not wanting to, but he agreed to it out of desperation to save his only son. And so um, they sent the county medical examiner who attended uh, Mercy Lena, they sent uh, a 19-year-old farmhand to his house uh, to get him to do the exhumations or at least perform autopsies in the cemetery. And his name was Harold Metcalf, 33 years old at the time, and he was like, incredulous. He said, you know, I, I'm the county medical examiner. I'm a prominent physician. I can't go out to a cemetery uh, performing autopsies in the middle of the day looking for the undead. So he sent the young man away. Young man came back with a collection uh, from, from George Brown of a substantial amount of money. So uh, 
you know, essentially, uh, Harold Metcalf said, "Well, if you put it that way, I'll I'll do it." But uh, I don't I don't believe in it. But I, if you pay me, I'll do it. So um, it was March. It was actually March, and uh, and she uh, Mercy Brown had been buried in uh, on January seventeenth. Her death date, anyway, was uh, the 17th, and she'd been buried soon afterwards. And she'd been buried in a crypt, a holding crypt, where they stored the bodies to wait for the spring thaw when they could bury it because the ground was frozen. Yeah, she wasn't even in the ground, right? No, no, she wasn't even in the ground. She was in the holding crypt. And uh, so they, when Harold Metcalf arrived, they had the um, bodies of the mother and the daughter, Mary Olive, uh, out of their graves, and he did autopsy them. Now, um, Mary Eliza Brown, the mother, died at uh, 36 years old. She uh, was basically, some of the skin and muscles were in a mummified state, and she, uh, the heart was still there, but it was just a dried lump of flesh, so very little needed to be done to show that that was not the the undead member of the family. And the uh, sister, Mary Olive, had gone to a complete skeleton, except she had a very long uh, head of hair still. That was all that remained. Uh, then it was, um, the only one left was uh, Mercy Lena. They took her from the uh, holding crypt and opened her casket. There she is. She's, uh, not only is she perfectly preserved, she's rolled over into a sleeping position. Now, no explanation. Practice, she was perfectly preserved. Yes, she had been buried above ground in the two two coldest months of the year. Yeah, she was basically uh, on ice. <laughs> yeah, she was. She was on ice. And uh, even Dr. Metcalf said, I don't see anything um, unusual about her preservation, uh, her state of decay right now. He did do the autopsy and uh, saw signs of tuberculosis in her lungs, so the scar tissue. And uh, he did uh, excise her heart and liver. And um, both uh, organs did drip some blood out, which I think was freshly defrosted blood. And um, that's all the people need to see. That, uh, that And these, you know, you, you picture this scene. These were church members. They were all men. That were, they were all men. And there's um, one of their uh, recently deceased uh, female parishioners, and they're watching her being stripped naked and yeah. uh, cut open. The same one that they may have shared a pew with in church. And right. sang him. And... Um, but they're sure, they're convinced now that she's the undead. And uh, Well, and George is having to watch this happen to his entire family. Well, at least, you know, three members of his family. Actually, so. actually George did not attend. He did not attend. Okay. No. Because, it, you know, today you think of this, it's such an, such an indignity yeah. due to this beautiful young woman and who was a faithful parishioner. And, um, but so he's still he having to agree. He's still having to agree for these people to do this, to, you know, dig them up. And like you said, you know, strip his daughter naked and, and all that. He's having to agree yeah, right. for these so other thank, men to do God. that. Yeah. Right. He wasn't there to, to actually witness it. Um, but they did burn the, took the, according to the old superstition, they did burn the organs on a uh, nearby rock, save the ashes. And uh, I guess they left it up to uh, Edwin Here's a, a way to inoculate yourself from this uh, terrible disease of the undead. Uh, we want you, we're going to mix these with uh, water and herbs, and uh, we want you to drink it. And uh, Edwin did agree. He drank the ashes of his uh, sister's organs, and um, unfortunately, that was not a cure. He died on May 2nd, 1892, less than two months later. And, um, you know, the, and the sad thing is that uh, her gravestone... Mercy Lena's gravestone has no epitaph, no no Christian epitaph on it, even though she was a devout parishioner. Yeah, I guess that's and, true. Yeah, there because yeah. there it is. There's, you're right. There's no epitaph. Yeah, you see the see the uh, the iron bar that's around her her headstone. That's because uh, in 1992 it was actually stolen. Oh wow! Somebody, wow! Somebody wanted that for a keepsake, so um, they put the word out. You know, if you are caught. You will be terribly prosecuted. However, whoever did this, if you do return this uh, undamaged, no questions asked. So it was returned privately, and that's why the uh, steel bar there, or iron bar, whatever it is there, encasing it in so nobody can just pluck it off again. But here's the thing. (laughs) You still can't explain, and I don't mean you personally. Right. Okay, 
that again the coldest months i get it mm-hmm. not being you know decomposed i get it cold mm-hmm. months no insects cold months i have yet in in all my years of studying death <laughs> because it fascinates me yeah i have never in my life heard of anybody being able to roll over in their grave to to a sleeping position mm-hmm. that's unexplainable and especially when people think about the coffins as they would be back then and not as they are now where they have a domed top mm-hmm. and everything else and they're quite roomy for no reason back then that would not have been the case they no. would have been you know the, the standard size flat top handmade no adornments, no cush, no nothing like that. Very, very, very raw and regular. Mm-hmm. Impossible to roll over in. All right. Why that is, uh, I don't have any explanation. I don't think anybody does. I did don't think the family, anybody... Did the Brown family live on the same grounds that the original family lived on? Uh, they, they lived nearby. They lived nearby. They're all in Exeter, right near where the Tillinghast family was. And, um, yeah, their farm was nearby. And, uh, yeah, and there there has been activity there. There has been activity in the years since in that cemetery. Um, Even family members have seen a big glowing ball of light, uh, Hmm. so so bright you could hardly look at it. And, of course, if you go there now at night, they've they've got all these uh, solar lights anyway that people are on the graves with, so it's hard to tell what's um, paranormal and what's not. But uh, people uh, years ago did see the great big uh, glowing bluish ball of light hovering over her grave. Um, some people think that she's um, wandering. I don't I don't believe she is. I, I believe she rests with, with God. And uh, But uh, I do know of... Um, a friend of mine, her daughter went to the, her and her friends drove into the cemetery at night. Suddenly all the car doors locked and they couldn't get out. Hmm. So they started to panic and I guess they said a quick prayer and they, suddenly they were able to open it and they got out of there and never came back. That's interesting. So, I, yeah. I want to come. <laughs> you go? I'll be glad to give you a tour. It's a, it's a beautiful place. It's a beautiful place. Uh, I might make my way up to make that sure. you should, really, Vanessa, you should come out to Ocean State Paracon next year. You know what? I think I will. Mm-hmm. I don't. I don't have anything planned for July as it stands right now. So I think I will do that. Oh, great. There you great. Go. And, you know, you see these people, they're wandering all over the place. We can't find, we're looking for Mercy Brown. We can't find her grave. Where is she? All you have to do is drive straight in. There's a clump of trees. There it is on the left. So, <laughs> about 100 we'll yards in and that's it. Wow. I've seen people circling around and around and around. It's, it's right there as you first come in, practically. <laughs> Good right. gravy. Well, we're winding down toward the end of the show. We have several questions out there in the chat. So let's go ahead and get to those before we uh, sign off here. Um, from, sure. from Sean Oldsmith, friend of ours out in Australia, he asks, what is your opinion of vampire spirits that take your energy? Uh, psychic vampires. Uh, I, that I do believe in. That I do believe in. I do believe there are, there are people that are psychic vampires, uh, not, not even realizing it. Sometimes, for some reason, and um, that uh, some certain people will. I mean, we've all known people that that are draining, draining personalities. But some people have. They could be physically ill. They could have a cancer or something like that. Something that's eating at them, and uh, for some reason, psychically, they they drain other people's energy as a matter of nothing conscious. It's nothing they do purposely. And of course, there are people that that do drain energy intentionally from people that are called psychic vampires. Um, I do believe there are certain spirits that drain energy from people, uh, that they take vital life forces and um, can make people pretty pretty sick, pretty sick. And uh, that's why you know it can be very very dangerous to conjure spirits because you don't really know what what you're conjuring. But uh, yeah, I do believe there are various forms of psychic vampires. Yeah. Okay. And I, I do as well, actually. Um, from B3 Airspace, one of our Deep Down the Rabbit Hole Patreon patrons, have you met vampires in New Orleans? No. No, I've never <laughs> been out there. Um, 
I would like to. I would like to. Not I would like to be with safe company yet yeah, what <laughs> we're doing. But but yeah. I'll no, meet perhaps. you down there. Oh that's yeah. that's Vanessa's favorite like, place. That I would love to do. I would love to do it. I love I watched Preacher, you know, the, sh the TV show Preacher that based on the comic and um that uh the vampires in there are wonderful. They're they're really cool. Especially um uh Cassidy, the vampire Cassidy. And he's he's like we've all known Cassidy. Cassidy's like uh, we've all known somebody like Cassidy. He happens to be a vampire, but if you watch the show, I mean, we've all known somebody down and out that has an addic addictive personality and just looking for friends and just can't seem to fit in and it's the outcast. Uh, so yeah, that's that's one of my favorite vampires. The fictional vampires is is Cassidy. Okay, I'll have to check that out. Cassidy. <laughs> Very cool. Uh, Betty Lange is asking, uh, has Keith met any modern-day vampires? Have I met? Not? Yes. Yes, I have. I have. Now, these were not the Hollywood type that come out of a casket, um, although maybe someone would like to sleep on and, uh, and you know, turn into bats and things like that. <laughs> but I have met practitioners of vampirism where they have actual cults, of vampire cults, where they will actually... It actually does become a, an addiction where they physically physically need small amounts of blood, just small, mm -hmm. but they need small amounts of human blood, and usually they find donors, other members of the cults or friends or things like that. And uh, yes, I have met pr practitioners. There was a dangerous one um, going back to the early 70s, and then again, Ed Lorraine Warren knew of this um, young woman too. She called, she was a teenage girl, called herself Lilith, after the deity Lilith, and um, she would hang around in the uh, cemetery. She got in big trouble once because she was hanging around the cemetery and dressed in all this goth makeup and everything. Uh, I guess it's a weekend night. A guy pulls over. Oh, look at that shit. Oh, wow. So cool. She, she's kinkier than I am. And he comes. <laughs> she said, why don't you sit next to me? And she and he's, oh, yeah, and everything. And they start making out. Before you know it, she's got the bite on him. And she Ooh. really she sent him to the hospital. She sent him to the emergency room. She took a big chunk out of his neck, wow. uh, severed a vein or something, and uh, really, really did some damage to him. So she, yeah. she really had a, a very uh, sick obsession there. Oh yeah. And I think she was to the demonic as well because she was a practitioner of uh, demonic arts. Okay. Wow. Oof, that, that, that's that brutal. That's brutal. Way. That was not, uh, you know, um, unlike in the Harrisville case, that was a real satanic witch. Yeah. Uh, we do have a $5 super chat from Raul Pfeiffer Mueller. Thank you very much, Raul. Uh, feel, feel and dunk, mine friend. Um, from, um, let's see, this is from Judy Wilson. We kind of brought this up earlier, um, but the question's out there. Are there any accounts of people today digging up people to check for vampirism? I know we talked about Romania. Is there anybody else doing that these yeah. days? I think there are very countries that, that still do that. Uh, but they're probably isolated pockets, you know, and it's, mm -hmm. uh, I hesitate to name certain provinces and countries because there's, there's no proof of it, but we know that it is going on somewhere in Romania. Uh, we know it has gone on fairly recently, the fairly recently history in England, different parts of the countryside in England, where um, a, a prominent priest in the um, 1970s, early 1970s, did supposedly find a real vampire and it was a decayed corpse, and uh, somehow it was moving around from place to place. It had been uh, locked in a tomb, then it shows up in an old house. We don't know how it got there, but he finally did the end, and he had actually a very, very disturbing picture of it, this uh, desiccated corpse. He actually did the ritual of um, uh, disposing of it, the, the uh, holly stake to the heart and the um, uh, Eucharist in the mouth and mm -hmm. severing the head and stuff like that, and then burning it, so... Basically, you've got to burn the corpse to keep it down, you know. Right. Um, here's a suggestion from Zippy Davis about uh, Mercy Brown. Uh, he asks, could an earthquake shake the ground enough to turn her over? And I don't know if they're, I mean, we're talking Rhode Island, does not, already doesn't get very many earthquakes, but, you know, I don't know if there's any reports from back then about earthquakes. Um. That's a good idea. I don't know what the seismic uh, activity was there, uh, how how uh, detailed records they kept. Uh, I haven't heard of any. I certainly have, haven't heard of any. Um, that, I mean, I certainly is a possibility. Uh, one, you know, she was not embalmed. She was not embalmed. I would hate to think that there was any uh, 
uh, life force still uh, alive in her when when she was uh, buried, but there was no signs of a struggle. So so you know, God forbid that would have happened. Yeah. But uh, no, that that is an interesting um, interesting supposition that why that may have happened. Yeah. Generally, the shoulder span to turn yeah. over would be too wide, even on a small body. Yes. To be able to do that, considering the depth of a coffin right. made at that time. Yeah. So I don't know. That's that's the one thing that's that remains a mystery. Why she was turned over into a sleeping position, looking very peaceful. That's um. Whereas Sarah Tillinghast was not, her eyes wide open, big smile, and everything. But uh, Mercy just seemed to be uh, calmly sleeping. Yeah, it's really interesting. And then um, from Tammy Heitzman, and then we'll have to wrap up the show. Uh, Tammy Heitzman asks, what was the most bizarre experience that you had at the Perrin farm? No, my most bizarre experience was when what was happening up in that room when suddenly all heck started and uh, uh, Nancy was slapped, uh, one of the sisters, and um, things started moving around. It was just... Uh, just all of a sudden, it just happened so fast that time seemed to slow down. It was almost like you were in a bubble. But um, then again, I realized, and then Andrea had to go down um, to get, and she came up to me and said, Keith, not that I'm a chicken, but I have to go get some preserves. Would you mind coming to the cellar with me? <laughs> and I nodded all. <laughs> and we came downstairs, and there's just one light bulb that could have gone out at any moment. And and uh, so she was getting really nervous. She could feel it coalescing again. But uh, I... I took her hand, mentioned the name of Jesus, and everything was all right, and we came back upstairs. So, But upstairs in that bedroom, the things going around, all this activity, that was the most um, horrendous thing to me there. Okay. That sounds like it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely a uh, very, very uh, wild experience that you guys had there. And again, just you know, reading Andrea's book and all the things that, well, books, because she has a trilogy, just reading about right. what really happened there over such a long period of time, you know, to me, it, it's you have those parts there that are a lot more terrifying than what they showed in the movie. And yes, mixed in with with the light as well, but you know, so much more than what they showed in the movie. Oh yeah, yeah, so so much more, and that's why she's doing a writing a trilogy of scripts so that she can get as much uh, of what went on in there in those in that trilogy of movies. So you get to see more and more of the story. It's, it's just, fantastic. you know, people there have the experiences, and um, Roger came back there, and uh, Spirit actually, uh, one of the Spirits actually liked him, and uh, would rub his back for him and everything like that, and uh, supposedly was very jealous of his wife, Carolyn, so. Okay. Um, and, spirit girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> and just real quick, uh, Gary wants me to uh, ask you what uh, you and he found at Mercy Brown's tomb the last time you were there. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Good point. Good point. Yes, we we came there uh, to the cemetery, and there was the the tomb. Of course, it's all walled up. It's cinder blocked now, so nobody can get in. There, there's the door just wrenched off its hinges. Just wrenched oh, wow. off. Very disrespectful. You know, and obviously they think they're going to find a, a coffin there with a vampire girl in it. You know, there's 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 nothing in there, and, and it's cement, it's cinder blocked over. But somebody had done some damage, just just torn that lock right off, used a crowbar or something like that. I mean, that's that's terrible. That's, um, it's a beautiful cemetery, and and that, to desecrate like that, that the, it doesn't do anything. And and people like us who want to research the history, uh, that that puts a damper on us too. Yeah, it makes it that much tougher for us. Yeah, it'll be off off limits, and I know I know you you people always gain permission to go into these places, yep. and and we try to too. But uh, something doing like senseless vandalism like that, it just it accomplishes nothing. And they obviously all they found was cinder blocks for all their efforts, and uh, somebody has to pay to fix that and everything. Right. So it just it just does everybody all around is a disservice. I think yep. people are idiots. Right. Yeah. yeah unfortunately. unfortunately. So, all right, Keith, well, I really want to thank you for coming on the show. What do you have coming up? You mentioned, you know, you're doing some more writing. Uh, of course, you're, um, you know, you're doing Ghost or Near. It, it, you always seem to have a lot going on. So, what's up? Well, yeah, yeah, I'm still doing Ghost or Near and uh, writing a handbook on demonology. My brother has a handbook on demonology out there, Carl, and uh, that's, that's well worth the read. 
and uh, we're going to be uh, soon making a trip, uh, New England Anomalies Research, Sandra and I are going to be making a trip to the uh, Borden House in Fall River, Massachusetts, ah, which is nice. another story. <laughs> yep, that story too. We're going to be uh, doing a show there, one of our Ghost on Air episodes, and Gary's going to join us. Um, he was the first local group to uh, his was the first local group to investigate that house. So, um, yeah, we're going to be doing a Ghost on Air episode there at the Borden House soon. Good. I would love to do that, too. You guys join us. <laughs> Same. I would love to, yeah. You guys are so far out there. <laughs> I know, I know. Just little little New England here. You know? Right, no, I love the area, though. I mean, I, I spent 10 years of my life in Massachusetts, so I, I've always loved that area. And, you know, so very, getting very back rich there. history. Oh, yeah, yeah, I love the history. And just getting back there this summer was a real treat. So be there next year. Vanessa, you got to come. I will. Count me in. <laughs> okay, great. All right. We'll make a date of it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. All right, Keith. Well, thank you very much for coming on. We'll go ahead and let Keith go, and then we'll get to all the shout-outs, and then we'll get on to our next show. So, again, Keith, thank you very much. Where can they find your uh, Where thank can they find your books real quick? Oh, I can uh, go on Amazon, Amazon.com or go to our website, um, nearparanormal.com. That way you get an autographed, personalized copy. Yay! All right, fantastic. <laughs> well, thanks again, Keith. Really do appreciate it. Very well. Bless right. you both. It's you have a great bye. day. Thank you. Bye bye. Yeah, bye bye. Bye bye.